I'm Katie Lazarus, and this is Employee of the Month. I had the pleasure of interviewing Jose Rivera. Well, this is how they would do it at the 92nd Street Y. Jose Rivera, the playwright. He is phenomenal. So just to give you some background, he was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for Writing Motorcycle Diaries. He's written 25 plays, including Marisol, excuse me, Marisol. And he's now writing a novel, pilot for HBO, several feature films, and directing. What did I do this morning? I tied my shoes. Okay, fine. I didn't tie them. They were slip-ons. You got me. Without further ado, here's my interview at his Brooklyn home. I'm here with Jose Rivera. I'm so excited to be with you. Um, you're a playwright, writer, and poet, and director, correct? Anything I'm Would missing? Would <laughs> Is there anything, and lover, is there anything I'm missing? <laughs> nope, I think that's it. Um, so you were nominated as the first Puerto Rican for Best Adapted Screenplay for the Motorcycle Diaries. You were also nominated for Writers Guild of America, I believe for the same film. Mm -hmm. You've won two Obie Awards for uh, two of your plays. You've won a McKnight Fellowship. You've been the Norman Lear Writing Award also, and a Fulbright. Um, and I know that I'm not saying all of the awards, an impact award. You won the Kennedy Center Fund for New American Playwriting Grant. Mm -hmm. What is it like for you to be receiving the Employee of the Month award? <laughs> well, it's, it is the pinnacle. There's no higher honor than that, I don't think. <laughs> um, I want to start with your childhood. This is a show about dream jobs, and part okay. of it is figuring out, like, you figured out what you wanted to be when you grew up? No, I mean... I came from working class parents. In, uh, in Puerto Rico, and then you guys moved to Long Island. When yeah, I was born five? in Puerto Rico, yeah. and I moved to Long Island when I was four. Four, excuse me. My dad was a short order cook, and a taxi driver, and a gardener, and you know, it's basically working class existence jobs. And you know, he raised six kids. Um, you were in which? I'm the, old, I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I had this. Uh, vision of you know like all kids do wanted to do better than their fathers yeah. so when my dad was driving a taxi i used to fantasize about driving a bus because it's much bigger and i thought oh, i'll be doing better than my dad so for quite a while i really wanted to be a bus driver were your parents very religious they were very catholic yeah highly catholic my mom wanted to be a nun when she was younger very religious to the point of superstitious you know like there were pictures of angels and things all over the house, pictures of the Virgin Mary, and, um, you know, my mom really sort of was a real magical thinker, you know. Um, she believed in ghosts and spirits, so there was just a lot of that. Um, the reason I asked about Catholicism is I think there's like an element of pageantry to going to church or any, any type of religious service as a kid, and mm -hmm. Sometimes I wonder if artists are attracted to that pageantry element, even yeah. if they may not be as thrilled, or they may be by the spirituality aspects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, a quality of ritual, definitely, in the Catholic Church. And a kind of drama is enacted, you know. So you turn blood, you turn wine into blood. Um, you know, the, the whole mass has a, has a sort of a dramatic structure, has a beginning, a middle, and end like any good play so uh and could you see that as a kid um that element of it not that as much i think I, I came to that later what i saw as a kid was fear i just thought the priest is like to scare the shit out of you because you know it's all about you know you can't take pleasure in sex you can't think about this you can't lie and steal and so to me the catholic church is all about the things you can't do which is why I'm not a practicing Catholic. Um, but later on, I sort of began to uh, really sort of appreciate cer certain things. For instance, when I was in high school, my best friend's father died. And I remember going to the Catholic Mass and listening to what they said about death. And that was the first time where I really got, oh, I understand why this is necessary, because there are certain things certain passages in life are just too difficult to navigate on your own. So you fall back on traditional wisdom or, um, you know, what, what people have accumulated over thousands of years of thinking. And in the way that the Catholic Church is sort of talk about death of that, that day really f was very comforting. Because I mm -hmm. felt someone has wrapped their minds around this somehow. And I, as a young 
you know, I was like 16, I didn't have to do it all by myself. I just thought that the words they chose to describe what was happening were very comforting. Do you remember those words in particular, or it was the feeling of hearing them? Yeah, it was just quality? yeah, it was the feeling that um, you know that that death was natural for one thing, and that it's not the end of something; it's the beginning of something else. And you know about really sort of living a good life, a moral life, and how important that is. Life is really about what you leave behind, as opposed to what you take with you. You know, so these sort of things as a 16-year-old are tremendously profound. As writers and artists in general have a stereotype, I think, of being agnostic or uh, certainly questioning mm -hmm. of religions, and yet the quest for morality in terms of leaving something behind mm -hmm. is so urgent. Mm -hmm. You know, because you just talked about, you know, leaving something behind. Mm -hmm. Did you mean in terms of your work, or did you mean in terms <clears throat> of something else? Uh... I think a little of both. I mean, as a 16-year-old, I, I kept thinking about not so much work, but uh, the your memories in other people's minds, leaving behind experiences that other people uh, bring up when they think of you. Mm -hmm. And the better they are, the better you know their thoughts of you will be, kind of thing. So that um, uh, it's really sort of like leaving, you know, it's like a comet leaving a trail. You know, you leave a trail in your life, and that trail lives in the people that you loved. You know, I think the the brighter that is, the, the better. Rumpelstiltskin was the first play that you saw? Yes, yes, um, I was 12. And yes, it was a traveling theater company that came to our elementary school. In Long, where in Long, Long Island? Long Island. Um, Lake Ronkonkoma, which is out in the middle of the island. I know it. No, I don't. But yeah, okay. it's, uh, it's out there. And, um, yeah, it was lovely. I, I remember still to this day where I sat and, you know, the thing that struck me about it was that it was so communal. It was about all of us having a shared experience in this, in this place and watching these group of people in funny little costumes um, making us laugh and making us think and making us, you know, feel this kind of awe. And uh, it was different than anything I'd ever experienced. Like, it was so different from, like, watching, you know, Gilligan's Island on TV. One could say the same about almost any experience, but there's a reason you were particularly drawn mm -hmm. to theater. Mm -hmm. so there was something about Rumpelstiltskin in this traveling theater. Yeah. There was something about that particular day and that particular experience that spoke to you. Yeah, yeah, because it wasn't lonely. Every, every time I watched TV at home, I felt lonely. So it's just me and that machine and that was it. But the quality of communal communication Mm -hmm. You know, that we would laugh and the actors got turned on by that and they were funnier and then we'd laugh more and, you know, that we were talking to them. So this, this quality of communication between performer and audience is something I picked up, you know, and uh, really thought it was really cool because I really thought I was part of the experience. And that felt very powerful. And what was the next time you had that opportunity? Did you then say, gosh, I want to be in plays, I want to write plays? What came after yeah, that? Yeah, what came after that was wanting to be in plays, because that, that looked like a lot of fun. Uh, but it was many years before I was in a play, because I was 12, and then I wasn't in a play till I was about, whatever, 15, 16 years old. In high school? Freshman in high school, okay. yeah. yeah. And I was in a play um, that was a lot of fun to be in. Uh, I just liked being in groups, you know, I liked, I joined like the track team just to be on the team, you know, not that I was a very good runner, but just I liked the idea of being on a team, being on a team bus and like being part of like this group of people that wanted to do something together. Writing seems like such a solitary way to make one's living and yet the beauty, it sounds like, of writing for the theater is that you are going to be working with a group at some point? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know anything about playwriting at the time. You didn't at 12? That's I, so odd. Most, yeah, most I know. children did. <laughs> they usually have a, a manifesto <laughs> written by the time they're 12. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I was very... Because I like the, um, you know, the solitude of writing, definitely. But uh, after a while, the kind of collaborative aspect of theater is so so engaging and so much fun that when I finally discovered playwriting, I really loved that part of it. Um, you chose Denison University. Why did you go there for college? Um, that was mostly a financial um, decision because I had applied to several schools 
like Tulane University because I thought it would be cool to live in New Orleans and, you know, places like that, like totally ridiculous reasons why I chose anything. But Denison offered a complete four-year financial scholarship kind of thing. Were you a good student in, in high school? I was pretty good, you know. I was in like in the top ten of the class and stuff, and the class was pretty, it was huge. Uh, it was like 500. I was a careless student. What does that mean? Meaning that I wasn't particularly rigorous, but I was smart enough to get by. It's not like I, I worked very hard in high school, and it really hurt me in college because once I got to college, I realized how much, how little I knew. You know, like every, all my classmates had read Milton, for instance, but because they had all gone to prep schools. But they also and, read and that by twelve, also, and had their manifestos. Yeah, and their manifestos in the show on Broadway. Um, so yeah, I felt a real at a, at a real disadvantage. Uh, in college, but I caught up. But Denison was basically, yeah, a total financial um, decision, and it, you know, a good one as it turned out, because the theater was a good theater department. Um, but they didn't teach playwriting, right? You, they you, didn't teach you playwriting. Just with your friends. I wrote plays. Yeah, I mean, I'd written plays in high school. I, I wrote a musical about Sarah, about Sarah Bernhardt. Were your parents really good storytellers? My mom was a, is still an amazing storyteller. My grandparents lived with us, and they told stories. And it was a year, I think when I was about 13, when our television broke. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the advantages to poverty. We couldn't afford to fix it or get a new one. So for a solid year, I didn't watch any television. And we just told stories around the kitchen table. And so that was, to me, the writing education that was most sort of formidable for me. Uh, was around that table. So that really changed a lot of things. And that was at age 13? Yeah, I was about 13 years old. When I was 16 or 17, I, I tried out for this play in high school and really loved it and kept doing play after play and then started writing plays. I, my very first play was a play called Just Dirt. And I'm almost embarrassed to bring it up because it was so corny. But it was about a girl named Dirt <laughs> because she lived in the street. She was a homeless girl. And she would pick through people's garbage to eat and she has this confrontation between this homeowner who doesn't want this girl picking through her garbage and herself who's hungry and the play was really about that and um, you it's know it's a real it's a genuine moral dilemma though yeah it is because she's got to eat and they're protective of their property and um, you know I was being Ibsen okay uh, <laughs> well and homelessness does figure again in your work later yeah 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 it does it does definitely it's definitely a theme um, was that because your you your uncle was homeless or? my uncle was homeless yeah in san diego and he died on the street in san diego and that inspired marisol the play but it's also a kind of uh rootless quality of being puerto rican too meaning that the island of puerto rico was um you know uh brought into the United States in 1898 after the Spanish-American War and has become a quasi-colony. And um, Puerto Ricans, you know, we are American citizens, but we're not fully, we're not a state, we're not an independent country, so there's a kind of no-man's-land quality to what Puerto Rico is. And so to me, the theme of homelessness has always been very, also very political. And a lot of my characters wander, they have no roots, they don't know where to be, and they don't know what identities to assume. And uh, so that, that you know, uh, metaphor for homelessness seems very also political at the same mm -hmm. time. You were at um, Denison mm -hmm. and you were writing plays with your friends. So in high mm -hmm. school you wrote plays mm -hmm. and they were put on through the school or? Yeah, just there it was put, was put on. And then the other two I wrote were not put on. They were like um, projects for like English class. But so you were nurtured to some degree by your English teachers. Oh yeah, you know, I wrote for the newspaper, I wrote I wrote for the uh, radio station, you know, I wrote plays. So, you know, a semi-enterprising person could really get a lot of a lot of things done. And were your parents supportive of your artistic endeavors? <clears throat> yeah, they didn't they were not they weren't unsupportive. They were laissez-faire. They were um, you know, as long as I was happy, they didn't mind what I did. They didn't really understand. Yeah. And so, you know, I would write plays, but they didn't know, they never read any of my plays. Did they go to see them? They, they didn't see the play that, that was produced. Chester. Yeah. They saw some plays I was in, but they didn't really get the theater. They didn't understand it. 
and not until I was an adult. Like, I had my first play in New York in 1983. They didn't see that, even though it was about them. But that same play was optioned by PBS and, and shown on American Playhouse um, series. And they still didn't understand that, but American Playhouse put out a full-page ad in TV Guide. They understood that. They got TV Guide. So, um, but you know, even to the time my father died, he never saw any of my plays ever. And my mom has seen a few of them now. What's that like for you, that distance between who you are and who they are, even though it sounds yeah. like a lot of love for them? Yeah, yeah. It is, it is weird, you know, because it is, we live in two different worlds, you know. And, you know, this whole red state, blue state thing. I get it because it was my family. My family is very red state, you know, and I'm very blue state. And, um, you know, we just valued completely different things, almost have two different languages. But as, as, as all parents, they are proud, so that's good, you know. Your siblings also, are you close with any of them? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're very close, you know, sort of emotionally close. Okay. Uh, I love them, but they live very different lives. You know, four of my brothers were in the military. You know, two of them were in Iraq in the first Persian Gulf War. They also suffer from, from post-traumatic stress syndrome. Their lives are very different. They work in factories and kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. And my, although my, one of my brothers is a teacher now, it's a very different, you know, they do all the red state things. You know, they, it's just that's their lives. Was there a freedom in that, you know, here you are going into playwriting and there's no pressure in another way? Because no one knows what it is for right. family. Yeah. Yeah, in a way, you know, and I just did my thing. You know, I just did what I wanted to do. So there was no one to stop me. There was no one to judge it. There's no one to say, you know, you need to be a doctor or you need to be a lawyer. There was none of that pressure. And, so, and it's funny because sometimes I think of my friends whose parents were artists. And then I think of myself whose parents were not. And, and sometimes I think, oh, they were luckier because they were nurtured at a younger age. But sometimes I think, no, I was luckier because I had no fear and had no limits. And now you have that with your own own kids who are in the arts. I, I'm going to um, skip ahead sure. to, to mentorship because you had this exciting opportunity to work with one of your mentors, Gabriela Garcia Marquez. And mm -hmm. I, I just wanted to hear about that relationship. I know I've read that you read Moliere and, and Shakespeare and Ibsen mm -hmm. in um, college and high school. And then you later got to read literature that at least gave some voice yeah. to your experience, or, or yeah, something that felt so much more familiar. Yeah, because I had I had been reading him in college, and then just got hooked on on his novels. So I read just about everything um, that he's written um, in fiction. And then yeah, 1989, a Sundance was able to get him like a two-week visa into the United States because he was sort of forbidden to come to the U.S. for many years because of his friendship with Fidel Castro. And, you know, America being America just wouldn't uh, allow him to come. So through Robert Redford and Sundance, they got him He goes him by Bob French. with his friends, just so you yeah, know. Yeah, Bob, yes, I know. <laughs> or El Bob, as Marquez calls him. <laughs> um, and so he came and did a two-week workshop with about a dozen... Um, writers from the U.S. And by that point, you were quite established to be going to Sundance, right? Because that's quite a prestigious... Yeah, I mean, I was still very struggling. I mean, I really yet to write... Uh, Mar I hadn't written Marisol yet, which is sort of a play that sort of helped my career the most. But, you know, I knew I was establishing my identity within myself. Like, I knew I, I was a writer, I knew I wanted to be a writer, and um, I knew I wanted to study with him. And did that prove equally important in be forming a career, having that identity within yourself of saying, I am a writer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was really the, the gift of my, f my first produced play, The House of Ramon Iglesia, which was done in, at the Ensemble Studio Theater in 1983. Because up until then, I left Dennis and I went to New York. I worked nine to five for four years. Where did you work? So I worked in various publishing companies. Um, there was a company called Plenum, which uh, uh, publishes science books. Yes. And so I wrote advertising copy for them. So I did that for four years, and it was a horrible existence, you know. It was like The Office, except not funny. And uh, 
wrote plays at night, you know, had no social life really, had no girlfriend for a long time, but kept chugging, writing plays, writing plays, writing plays, joining theater companies, having readings. And so from, you know, 77 when I graduated college to 83 when, I, when the play was produced, that's what I was doing. And so it was rejection after rejection. It was, you know, it's like the standard life, you know, for, for a young artist. I don't know if people know what it's like to be as poor as we get. Yeah, yeah. No, um. it's pretty down and out. I mean, it's, you know, and my I couldn't rely on my family. It wasn't like yes. they had no money, you yes. know. My brothers were in, you know, were in basic training, that, you know. But, you know, I kept at it. That was the, the whole thing. So I wouldn't stop. So I kept writing plays and sending them to the O'Neill and getting them rejected and sending them to the Humana Festival and getting them rejected. And finally, this one play uh, won a contest uh, in 83. What was the contest? <clears throat> it was called the FDG CBS New Play Contest. And uh, it was the first year of that contest. And what, what, what they did was... The, How did you find out about these contests? Because you don't even have the web at that point. Yeah, no, it's just word of mouth. Ask your friends, people tell you. This was a contest that was regional. So I was the winner from the East. You know, it's uh, so exciting. Yeah, it was very exciting. It was, very, it was a life-changing event. You know, I wasn't at the end of my rope, but I didn't know how, how much how much longer the rope was at that point. The contest came with money. It was five thousand dollars, and a production, and a lot of publicity. I ended up on television. There was on sh- CBS. Uh, not, well, I think there might have been CBS affiliates. There was a show called The Bill Boggs Show, yes. which was like a morning talk show thing. There was Pia Lindstrom, yes, who interviewed me. Yeah, so suddenly everything changed. So I quit my job, you know, and it was in the middle of like the recession back then. So it was like you know during Reagan's uh, recession, and uh, people would say you're quitting your job. Unemployment rates are through the roof. I said, yeah, I've got five thousand dollars. <laughs> And a very cheap lifestyle. So I thought I could make it last. But that really was a life-changing kind of thing. And then seeing my play produced in professionally with professional actors. Where was it produced and who were the actors and how were they selected? Uh, they, it was the Ensemble Studio Theater. A wonderful playwright named Jack Gelber directed it. Jack wrote The Connection and was very, very famous. The actors all just auditioned. A lot of them were Ensemble Studio Theater members. Um, and did you become a member of that theater? I eventually became a member, yeah. yeah. And what does that mean to be a member of, of a theater? EST? Well, this particular theater, you know, it's, it's all member-driven. So if you're a member of EST, you can initiate projects. You can, you know, get your plays read and workshopped. You know, when they do a play, members get priority in casting. You know, and if you can't cast within the membership, then they have outside auditions, but they try to do everything within. And really membership is, is huge. I think it's like 300 people, oh, something wow. like that. It's huge. It um, really is nurturing, is what I was going to say. I mean, again, it goes against the stereotype of this solitary writer. You have yeah. all this support all of a sudden. Yeah, it's a great you. community. And so getting that play produced was, was a huge, huge thing. And uh, it was well-reviewed by Frank Rich. Um, Who writes for the New York Times. Uh, not anymore, though. Right. I think Frank left. Yes, you are correct. Yeah. I apologize. Um, but I anyway. just wanted to preface that at the time you were getting a review by the New York Times. Yeah, it was the New York Times. Yeah, it was a big deal. And in retrospect, working for four years doesn't seem like that long of a time to work outside of what you wanted to be doing. Yeah, no, no. When we put it in context, it doesn't. Particularly in your early 20s. Yeah, exactly. Right? So you're how old at this point? At I was uh, 83, 28. Okay. Yeah. So 28 is when you do you feel like you broke then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's so funny because cut to the future, um, I, I was teaching um, playwriting at UCSD in, the, in a graduate program. And uh, I was shocked because I, I went on the there was a small class, like five. I asked them all how they ended up in graduate school. And they said, oh, I went to New York. And after a year, I just couldn't make it. And I, you know, and it was so funny to me that people would only give it a year. Or yes. two years at the most before sort of like throwing their hands up and saying, I've got to go back to, I got to go back to school. How seven? When is it too many years? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. But one does not seem like enough. <laughs> <laughs> so then The Promise came next. Yeah. So I wrote The House of Augusta, then The Promise, then... Each Day Dies Each with day Sleep. Each Day Dies with Sleep. And yeah. then Marisol was the sort of the next... 
Yeah, next one. Because both The Promise and Each Day were savaged by critics. Uh, what was Frank that like? hated Each Day Dies With Sleep. Hated it. What, what was that like to, to open a paper and see your work? Oh. Yeah, it was terrifying. Pleasure. Well, you know, what happened with The Promise was, because uh, Frank Richard loved the House of Roman Iglesias so much, he was asked to come back to review The Promise. And at the last minute, he couldn't come. And I was heartbroken. And they sent Mel Gussow instead. And I was, one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life, I was in the audience at, at the play, and somebody asked me, I said, oh, I hear Frank Rich is coming. And I said, no. And I said, in a very sour voice, I said, it's Mel Gussow. And this guy in the audience, like two seats from me, turned to look at me with a horrifying, nasty, angry look on his face. And it was Mel Gussow. And he just gave it the worst review you have read. I bet. Yeah, so it taught me to keep my mouth shut in the theater. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, those two plays bombed. Big Why were time. you upset that he was coming? Did, was he known for writing negative reviews? He was pretty negative, yeah. And, 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 and I thought, oh, I had a friend with Frank. And uh, as it turns out, it wasn't true because he hated them, you know, each day I would sleep. But, you know, I was young and stupid. Yes, yes. <laughs> so Marisol really changed all that because I had great reviews and it was sort of a big hit at the Humana Festival. You know, really Do you say you Mana Festival or Hugh Mana Festival? Uh, I think it's Hugh Mana Festival. I think that your level of becoming indoctrinated into what you call blue state, or I think oh, sort of bougie intellectual, it's, yeah, it's self-indulgent world, should be you Mana Festival. You Mana Festival, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, how does that play out? Because I don't know what it's like to have a game changer. What's it like to have your game changer? It's it's a little like a, it's a very surreal experience because it became the hottest ticket in that festival. No one could get in. You know, people were begging me for tickets. I said, I can get, barely get myself in. And it was just a heady, crazy experience. I mean, it was a fantastic production of that play. Um, uh, and the acting was, was really wonderful. But, you know, and suddenly people were lining up to produce it. You know, so suddenly I had production uh, opportunities at La Jolla Playhouse and um, Hartford Stage. And uh, eventually it was done at the public. You know, so it was a it was great because they say that the hardest production for a play is not the first one, it's the second one. Because once you've been produced and the world premiere is is no longer available, people don't want to do your work. People only want world premieres. So in this case that that didn't happen because people kept wanting to produce it over and over again. How did you know how to do the business aspect of it? Meaning you have to control so many moving parts. It seems like you're so vulnerable. How did you know how to, to um, strategically? Do you, do you know the character of Edo Annie in Oklahoma? Yes. She's just a girl who can't say no. Yes. That's me. <laughs> I didn't really care. I like, you want to do my play? Yeah, do it. <laughs> you know, after all those years of waiting, anytime somebody wanted to do my play, I would say yes. And do you still feel that way? <laughs> I kind of still feel that way. My agent sometimes thinks that it's not the best strategy. Uh, but I keep thinking, you know, I write the place to get them produced. I don't write the place to have them, you know, be chess pieces in some game between theaters and, you know. And these were great theaters. I mean, you know, the, the theaters that were doing Marisol then were really the, Well, know, this is the preeminent, some of the right? Best you regional Mahoya, theaters. San yeah. Diego, Hartford. Yeah. And these are where anyone would premiere today. Yeah. You know, if you had your choice, wouldn't you still premiere in oh, sure. places? Yeah, absolutely. And then the Joseph yeah, and Theater, theater and, and stuff, yeah. Um, so you've written 25 plays? I think so. Okay. Something like that, yeah. And why did you start also doing film? And I actually wanted to start with TV, because that's where yeah, you, you, TV, you yeah. started to branch out from plays mm -hmm. into television. I'm just excited because you wrote for different strokes. <laughs> did you come up with um, what you're talking about, Willis? I didn't know. I inherited that. Uh, can you repeat it? Phrase. No, I can't. I can't. What you talking about, Willis? I can't do it. You're a good man. Maybe I'll do that it. That is dignity. Before the end of the um, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we might hear it. Um, yeah, I know. I fell into TV. Well, it's funny because, you know, I, I had that play, first play produced. I had five grand in the bank. <laughs> Money went like that. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to go back to working nine to five. And I was offered a job in TV. So I took it, you know, because I didn't want to work nine to five. So I worked, I got a job with Norman Lear, the, the TV producer. So how, I mean, as an outsider, that just seems like the most exciting fantasy in the world. How does that happen to succeed <clears throat> in one field and somehow that 
enables you to then start at the top in another field. Even though it's like you're starting as a young writer, mm -hmm. you're getting to interview with Norman Lear. Yeah, yeah, it was a crazy thing. I mean, it was during that heady period when I was doing TV interviews, Norman ran a company called Embassy, and they were doing this Latino sitcom for Paul Rodriguez, the comedian, and they needed writers. So Norman sent his development person, this guy named Tom Alderman, to see the house of Ramon Iglesia. And he well, really liked it. I just find it funny that they're doing a comedic television show and they're mm -hmm. going to a serious playwright. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Is it, it really made no sense. Oh, you're Latino, you yeah, get it? Yeah, no, no. It was, it was really kind of wrongheaded in every way. You know, so Tom saw the play, liked the play. I met Tom. You know, he said I should meet Norman. I met Norman. I was a big fan. He goes by El Norm, by the way. <laughs> after. Yeah. <laughs> what Marquez calls him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so Norman was great. And, but I did tell him, so look, I'm not, you know, you're doing a sitcom set in East LA where I have never been. And I said, this is the Chicano family and I'm a Puerto Rican from New York, you know? And he was like, oh, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out, you know? And I thought, okay, I maybe could figure it out. And so, yeah, next thing I knew, I moved to LA. And I was a staff writer for Pablo and um, completely, completely in over my head. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't own a television at the time. I hated sitcoms. And you I, mentioned the loneliness when you were young of, of the experience yeah. you felt of watching TV and so I was interested how you wrote for something that yeah, gave you this. Yeah, it was very hard. I mean, I remember the first time I sat in a studio audience because they had the warm-up comedians, you know, that, that keep the audience laughing between takes. It was horrifying. Do you know that I'd love that job and I could never get that job? Really? Yeah. I, guess, I mean, it must be great training. No, I don't think it's great training. Oh, it's it's great just training. nice to have a job. You have I mean, a job, yeah. I'd love it. Yeah, I just thought from an audience point of view, I felt so manipulated. And I kept thinking the whole concept of a live studio audience is complete bullshit because the applause science tells you what to do and when to do it. So, I mean, I struggled through it and I, you know, I like, and I love Norman. I still love Norman. He's a great guy. Um, and I learned a lot. What were some of the things you learned? Because I think a lot of times when people say, I learned all these lessons and it's very difficult to understand. Yeah, what I learned, um, I learned how to set up a joke, you know, in, in sitcom kind of language. I learned how to write under a deadline. I learned how to write under pressure. I learned how to write for a cast. Um, How is that different than writing for a playcast? Well, I've, I'd never written for a playcast before. I'd just written roles and then cast them. I'd never gone the other way where I said, oh, here's a specific actor whose voice I can capture and I'll write it. That's what I learned. Like, I had to f figure out Paul's voice and write it. And there was other actors, like Hector Elizondo was in it. Yeah, I had to figure out Hector's voice and write that. So, in a way, it's really learning how to write in a voice other than your own. And also because the clock is always ticking in television. I learned economy. I learned, you know, how to really just get to it, how to rev up a story in the first three lines of a, of a script. Those kinds of lessons were very different than play lessons. And you were writing in a group, I imagine. You were writing in a... There was a staff, What yeah. was that like? That, that was a little horrifying. You know, I couldn't get used to it. I mean, I liked the staff guys, they were, and they were all guys. And seen, I don't think I ever met a woman writer when I worked in television. Don't worry, it hasn't changed that much. No, yeah, no, I know. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was very competitive, which I didn't like. I wasn't used to. So it was like, you know, I remember sitting around the room, and we were going over the script line by line, and, you know, and it'd be my script, for instance, and one of the producers would clap his hands and say, I've got a better joke. And I'm like, I want to kill you. You know, it was sort of very competitive and kind of demeaning in that way. And I, I just couldn't hang with it. I couldn't. I wasn't the kind of person that was fast on my feet and could top someone else's jokes because I had one ready in my brain. I was just not that person. So you, you did that, but then you went to different strokes after that one? Yeah. So what happened was that I signed a multi-year contract with Norman. Okay. With, uh, for his company, Embassy. And, um, you know, uh, Pablo was gone at the end of the first season. So I had another year on my contract that, you know, they had to, they had to pay me. So they didn't want to just waste the money. So they stuck me on one of their shows. Uh, so they stuck me on different Strokes. And Strokes was, I think it's in, it was in its 11th, and I think last season when I was on it. And, uh, or maybe it was one more season, I can't remember. 
but so I, I came in as a not not as a staff writer, the next level of story editor, and um, you know. It and was, by then, did, be, from your first job, did you know what all these different positions were and what they meant? No, I learned it all, you know, just on the job. Okay. You know, I, I really had to figure out all the structural stuff. But you were making enough money from TV writing that you yeah. could just do this as your main job? Yeah, this was my this was my job. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, and it's funny because in a way it was re a repeat of my old office job because I would work on the show during the day and then at night I would write plays, you know. Um, but the show was much more consuming than the office job was. You know, it's just many more hours. And, you know, I liked the other staff members. They were a crazy group of people. Uh, but, you know, the show was old and stale. And, you know, it was just regurgitating a lot of old tropes. And um, really not... It wasn't about anything, you know. It's just joke after joke after joke. And the whole joke of, like, this little midget black kid, you know, I, I just thought that was really, really old. And, and Gary Coleman was sick, you know, he was having, he had dialysis, he was in and out of the hospital. He was over it, you know, he didn't care. And, you know, there was one point where he was having an operation and the doctors were saying, you know, you're gonna have to shut the show down because, you know, Gary's gonna be out for three or four months. And Gary's father came to the producer and says, no, no, I'm gonna get him back in three weeks. We're not gonna shut the show down. You know, that was appalling, you know. They were just pimping out this 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 guy. Wow. So you know it was nutty shit like that, and there was like uh, Todd Bridges, who was you know, played the brother, doing crazy things. Like he he bought a monkey, and the monkey got sick, so he took it in his backyard and shot it, and killed it. Uh, Dana Plato was like robbing stores. I mean, During the show. Yeah, I mean... I remember they were all crazy characters. They, they were yeah. all crazy. They were nice people. Yes. They were really nice people, but they were, you know, had a lot of success very young in life and not well supervised, and they were just going crazy, you know, and Dana died, and, you know, I mean, it was... Uh, I thought know, all three... Well, all three of them have passed now, right? I don't know if Todd has passed. I don't know if Todd has passed, and yeah. I apologize if he has not passed. I'm yeah, sorry. I hope he hasn't. If I mean, I apologize if he has passed. <laughs> I just said I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize, but you have to cut that whole element out. Wait, so what about um, after this you do Erie, Indiana, and you create that show? Yeah. So how does that happen? Yeah. So when my contract with, with Embassy expired, I went back to New York. Uh, left LA, went back to New Did York. Did you miss New York? <clears throat> yes, terribly. I missed okay. New York. I missed the theater. I started writing more plays, and um, yeah, I was writing. You know, I wrote Marisol. I, I met Marquez, and what happened was in 1989. Uh, I, you know, because I left LA and was in New York writing plays, I was starting to not have money again, and so I applied for a Fulbright fellowship. And the Fulbright Fellowship took me to London for the year, for 1989. And it was good because it sustained us financially for that year. And I had a two-year-old daughter. Adina, <clears> at <throat> that time. You, don't, you were already married. Yes, I was married. I was married okay. in 83. Okay. And so we had Adina. And, um, you know, my wife at the time was like, you know, we can't keep living this nomadic life. You know, we need to settle down. We have a daughter. Uh, she really wants to give L.A. another chance, even though I hated it. <clears throat> and I said, okay, we'll give LA another chance. And it was actually while I was in London that I came up with the idea for Eerie. Okay. As a kind of teenage Twilight Zone was, was the pitch. And so... It had a real cult following, but yes, yeah, It did, yeah. So we left London in June of 89, uh, went to LA, lived on my friend's couch for a while. With your baby? With the baby. How big was this couch? It was, a, it was uh, ample. It was ample. Marquez calls it El Couch. <laughs> um, and so it, it, uh, that's what we did. And it was crazy because we had so little money. And we finally got our own apartment. And I was pitching Erie to ICM, who was, they were my agents at the time. And ICM had this client named Carl Schaefer. And Carl had created a show called TV 101. Mm -hmm. and, and Carl had a deal with NBC 
uh, like a blind pilot deal, and he was sort of struggling because he didn't have ideas that they liked, and you know, so I had an idea and no deal, and Carl had an, uh, a deal and no ideas. So ICM got us together and we pitched it to NBC, and we didn't know what was going to happen. And around the same time, we were so broke and we were in our own apartment uh, that our phone got disconnected because I'd failed to pay, pay the bill, and so. My wife was like freaking out because this felt like you know we were one step from living on the street, and so I went to the phone company in person, I paid the bill, and the next day the phone was reconnected, and we got the call from NBC that day saying they were going to make Erie, Indiana. Wow! So it was like uh, just from one thing to another. You didn't even have so answering quickly. machines then. No, no. Do you know how many deals you probably got that you just didn't know? <laughs> I know. In those 24 hours? invested in a carrier pigeon or something. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So then we got Erie on the air. And, and it was I was again in over my head. Because now I, I wasn't even a staff writer. I was the producer of the show. Yes. And I had never even produced, you know, dinner at that point. You yes. Know, let alone a show. So I was like... I'm still waiting, actually, and, for and, even breakfast. But yeah. <laughs> and learning while I was doing and, uh, and managing a staff, and managing, managing a staff. staff who's not even just writing, but doing all these other things yeah. that you have no experience. Doing. Yeah, casting, you know, being on the set, being in post production, you know, that was the hardest part. And I remember saying to Carl, "says you know, there's no post in theater." <laughs> right. I would think the yeah. casting would be fine, and the writing yes, would be I, fine. I knew those two things very uh, well. And directing, but the the other elements would seem so foreign to de dealing with the studios. Yeah. Um, and having so much money at stake, which I think is the inverse of theater, I assume. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, those shows cost a lot of money. And, uh, and, NBC, and it was funny because the show was kind of a little too goofy for my tastes. I really wanted a, a scarier, kind of eerier show. But it was fine. You know, it had sort of, sort of compromise between being dark and being, you know, entertaining. You wanted uh, it to be more like the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. I really wanted to scare the pants off kids. <laughs> um, and so... But NBC wanted something lighter. But even f for with all the lightness, it was still too avant-garde for NBC. They didn't know what the hell to do with it, you know. And they kept tinkering with the show and changing the theme song and firing actors and getting actresses with bigger boobs. Brands. You know, that's what they that's what they want. That's what they thought would fix the show. Whereas the real problem with the show was its time slot. We were on opposite sixty minutes, which oh, at wow. the time was the number one show on television. Yes. And so nobody was watching our show. Yes. And then they kept futzing with it, and people, its fans started to question it. And so it was a disaster, disaster. And so was that sort of after that you thought, I'm not going to do any more television, although you did a couple more things, Goosebumps and The Jungle Book? Yeah, yeah. Those were sort of like freelance. I did a little okay. freelance TV, but I okay. was sort of put out by, by television. The reason I'm asking also is because I, I heard you once say in an interview, you have to choose either film or television, or, or you felt you had to choose yeah. one route, and that this was going to be like that copywriting job mm -hmm. initially. It sounded like, this is how I'm going to make my money so right. that I can write my plays. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't half-ass it on TV. Like, on, when you're on staff and television, you can't phone it in. You know, uh, it's a high-pressure job. It takes a lot of hours, and uh, you got to be on your game. Um, so in that way, it's hard to split your energy, you know. But I meant that it, it sounded like at the time you were choosing to write for film or television as a way to make money mm. to be a playwright. Right, right. Yeah, because I wasn't making money as a playwright sufficient enough to support a family. Okay. You know, that's why. So I really felt I had to sort of choose. And then <clears throat> you ended up sort of going towards film, it sounds like. Yeah, after Erie, I just got really discouraged and... I just hated the way television people th thought, um, and I didn't, I couldn't connect with it. So, um, and back then, it, it's not like it is now. Now, television is really considered very prestigious for a writer. You know, back then, particularly for a playwright. For I mean, playwright, it, it seems yeah. like right now, being a well, I would say for comedy too, but but for being a playwright, and and you can have an ongoing play. Yeah. Yeah, if you work exactly. on cable, these shows are phenomenal. Yeah, and there's so much more artistic freedom. And back then, it was, you know, this is really before cable took off. Yes. So it was it was the networks, you know, yes. and they had rigid, you know, rules and protocols and what you can or cannot say, and you know. Um, so, for instance, I wrote an episode that never made, it, never got on the air. We shot it, 
and it was about a kid who had an abusive father, like verbally abusive, and he would always yell at his son, say, you're a loser, you're never going to amount to anything, what's wrong with you, you know? Um, and the kid was into this heavy metal band, and that's what he did all the you know, morning, noon, and night, was listening to this. And the father was convinced that the kid was getting satanic messages from, from the record. And the climax of the, of the episode was when the father breaks into the son's room and he puts the record on the, on the turnstile and he plays it. He says, if you listen to this backwards, you hear the satanic messages. So he runs the record backwards with his finger. And what you hear on the record is the father abusing the son. You're a loser. You're nothing. You're oh, never wow. gonna you know, it was, like, it was my favorite episode because it really was about something. And the network, the guy who ran the network literally said, as long as I'm the head of this network, that show will never see the light of day. It's interesting, though, because, you know, Norman Lear's show, uh, Good Times, mm -hmm. was how I learned about uh, domestic violence in a way that I hadn't seen on television. I mean, I certainly knew about it mm -hmm. uh, personally, but I, I, I hadn't seen that. Mm -hmm. on mainstream television. So you're also starting to write for TV when there's a shift in what is acceptable on television. Right. Because um, the daughter, uh, Janet Jackson's character, gets burned. So Anyways. Yeah. Uh, so so I, it, it is interesting that you started with Norman Lear. Mm -hmm. And those shows were quite profound. Yes. They were real groundbreaking. You know, that's why like, when, when Norman appeared in my life, I, I you know, went for it. But everyone else was not Norman Lear. You know? Yeah. So it wasn't just the era. It was that Norman Lear created yeah. shows yes. that were really socially conscious, yes. you know, very political, very savvy, really of their time in a, in a great way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the shows today that we were talking about that are on cable now, these dramas, mm -hmm. um, I wonder sometimes if those writers were influenced by growing up watching Norman Lear, because I certainly sure. was. Yeah, yeah. No. And then I see the shift to the younger generation of writers, and their stuff is uh, less deep, I mm -hmm. think. It's less based in reality. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were just, I mean, the, the guys at NBC who, who oversaw Erie really just wanted a goofy, entertaining show. They didn't want to. They didn't want messages. They didn't want. It's the '80s. Yeah, it really was. It was really the '80s. So that soured me, and I decided to start writing screenplays. And I wrote one spec screenplay that nobody wanted, and then I started pitching an idea uh, about a man who is uh, born old and gets young. It's called Benjamin Button. Well, that was the problem. <laughs> Benjamin Button was also. Uh, it had already been written. No, Benjamin Button is a problem. <laughs> Benjamin Button was the problem in my life at the time because everyone said, "Oh, I felt that way when I saw the movie as you're, well." <laughs> you're just copying Benjamin Button, and I said, "I didn't even heard of Benjamin Button." And besides, Benjamin Button itself wasn't original; it was based on F. Scott Fitzgerald's yes. story, which itself was based on a Mark Twain idea. And actually, Mark Twain took that story from Plato. He hadn't um, shown anyone it. Right, and Plato got it from Marquez. So, yes. I mean, it's just one big circle. <laughs> he goes by L. Plato. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Sorry. I hope so. Um, so anyway, that, that you know. El Plato. I, yeah, el Plato. El Platano. Uh, so he, yeah, I, uh, I pitched it and sold it to this company called Interscope, which, oddly enough, is known for its gangster rap music. But they also had a film division at the time. So I sold it, wrote it, and almost got it made. You know, came really, really close to getting made. But ultimately didn't. But it was my calling card. Yes, and I've heard that before from you about that this movie was the big movie for you in the same way you were talking about Marisol mm -hmm. um, being such an important play mm -hmm. career-wise. Um, and I've also heard from many people that they may get on the blacklist, which is the sought-after list to get on. But that what got them there may not get Produced, right. Mm -hmm. But it gets them more jobs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This was a, <clears throat> yeah, a lot of people read, it was called Lucky. A lot of people read it, really loved it. You really like to be on the nose. like With names? <laughs> yeah. Lucky, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Just dirt. I know. I know. <laughs> Just lucky, I guess. Um, yeah. So what eventually happened was that, you know, the script was going around as my sample. And so, uh, when Walter Salas was looking for a writer for the Motorcycle Diaries through Redford, who was producing it, um, you know, Walter, who didn't live in L.A., really wasn't plugged in 
Do you want to talk a little bit about, yeah, about him? Because it seems like after Gabriela Garcia Marquez, it sounds like Walter Salas was the next major relationship. Yeah, definitely. To this day, even. Um, Yeah, so he was looking for somebody, and um, everybody and their brother sent him scripts. So there were scripts from CIA, there were scripts from, you know, ICM, uh, UTA, all these companies. All the different agencies, And he didn't want, well, I don't know if he didn't want to, but he didn't have the time to sit and read through them all to look for a writer, you know. And um, in his own company, Endeavor, submitted writers. So he had an assistant, uh, a woman named Eileen Gibson, read the scripts. No relation to Mel. No no relation to Mel, thank God. and, and Eileen said, I don't know, there's, there's only one script in that pile that's any good. And it was, that was lucky. And so, you know, and I've always been grateful and always will be grateful to Eileen for that. Um, Is she still Walter's assistant? No, no, she, she quit a couple of years ago. Is she a writer also? She's a writer, yeah. She okay. was actually in my writing group in L.A. So that is the joy, though, of, of knowing that people in your business are all aspiring to do something else. Yeah. And in this sense, it's a real positive. Yeah. Because she yeah. really was a good writer. Yeah, she was a good writer. And, 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 and uh, that's why my philosophy has always been be as good to everyone you meet every time you meet them. Because you never know. You just never know what they're going to end up doing. Um, I so, just want to say how nice you are. <laughs> uh, so Eileen, anyway, so Eileen... Uh, said that script, Walter read it, he really loved it. And so we met for lunch, and over the course of lunch, he hired me to write the Motorcycle Diaries. And where did you meet for lunch? Because he wasn't living in Los Angeles. Yeah, he was uh, it was some like major Beverly Hills Hotel type place. It wasn't Be- the Beverly Hills Hotel, okay. but it was one of someplace on Wilshire Boulevard. I'm terrible with names. Uh, but it was very fancy, a lot fancier than I was used to. And um, and Walter's very gracious. And, and right before meeting him, I saw, I saw Central Station, which I loved. Mm-hmm. And that was his big <clears throat> profound work. Now, that, that was 10 years earlier. Not, this is 98, right? When, was when it, Central Station remember, was produced. Yeah. Um, but, but it had been a while since, since, since that. Since that, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and he was so passionate about Motorcycle Diaries and really felt it was the only way to tell Che Guevara's story. And... Um, you know, so we talk about politics, we talk about our families, and we really hit it off. So, uh, yeah, it was one of these sort of magical Hollywood stories that by the, by the time dessert came, I had the job. <laughs> I mean, it's so exciting to hear about that, that that's possible and that that happens, because I, I certainly feel I've met people where they really liked me, but to then also get work from that and create this working relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's no, so it's, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a very, very lucky experience. Um, Maybe you, you already need, also wrote The Secret, also. You should, you should probably <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you should sue Benjamin Button and sue The Secret. Right. Uh, it just plagiarized. <laughs> you named what you wanted. <laughs> yeah. I need luck. I'm going to name a screenplay after. So, yeah. So, and then, then, you know, uh, we've had a continuing relationship since then. So, yeah, I wanted to go over that. And I, I, the only reason I'm brushing over the Motorcycle Diaries is only because you've talked about it a yeah, lot. Yeah, many times. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful film, and I highly recommend people go see it. And um, you were treading a very difficult path in writing about something that's been so written about, frankly. Mm-hmm. Except that the part of his life you were writing about has not. Yeah. But I just meant that Che, in general, is is almost now a cliche in and of himself, and it's I would imagine very hard to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the only thing I wanted to to talk about in that because I feel like you've you've spoken about it otherwise. Is mm-hmm. that fair? Just to talk about yeah, that yeah, one element yeah. of what is it like writing about someone who is so famous that it's sometimes curious whether people know what he's famous for. Right. He's just become a tagline almost. Right. It's famous with a t-shirt pretty much. Yes. Okay. Oh, you have to go. Okay. No, no, we don't have to leave. I just want to have... So I... Motorcycle Diaries is a, a phenomenal film, and I encourage everyone to see it. What is it like writing about someone who is larger than life at this point? That like, mm-hmm. I so often wonder if, if people know who Che Guevara is, even though they'll refer to him or wear his T-shirt. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, I think, because we were dealing with a very specific uh, year in his life, uh, that the iconic uh, Che really didn't play any part in the story. And it was good because that pressure was taken away. Um, in fact, the, the word Che is only used once in the entire yes. film. 
and there's only one moment of violence in the film when he throws a rock, a rock at a truck. Um, no, it felt like this coming of age story. Yeah, these two it was boys very universal. Off. Yeah, it's really it was really about how the road uh, awakens you and deepens your consciousness, and that's really what happens to this young man, and it's something you know most people can relate to. So in that way, uh, that was the theme, you know, and um, and then you received an Oscar nomination for that. What does that do in and of itself? You know, being yeah, a getting I mean, an Oscar. How does that change your career? Um, yeah, I mean, it was suddenly everything was kind of uh, topsy turvy. You know, I mean, um, it makes it topsy turvy as opposed to easier. I would assume yeah. getting an, an Oscar nod <clears throat> would make life easier. No, it makes it more complicated. Okay, it makes it more complicated because uh, you know suddenly everybody who wouldn't talk to you talks to you and wants you and uh you know the very f next job i got after after the nomination was um uh for dreamworks you know and i couldn't get arrested at dreamworks prior to that <laughs> you know? in fact dreamworks was one of the people i pitched lucky to and they wouldn't they wouldn't take it and so now you have to lick all these wounds and go in yeah yeah and you know pretend like nothing ever happened yes. and that you know but it was fine, you know, and the, and the job I did for DreamWorks is a script I really believe in, though they never they never made it. Which one was that? Uh, it was called The State Boys Rebellion. Yes, and it was about, uh, in the 40s, there were these uh, places, there, there was sort of a eugenics movement in the United States uh, that partly inspired Hitler and vice versa. So where people really thought that we needed to segregate the mentally deficient from the population to keep them from uh, reproducing. So there were these schools where kids who were, you know, quote unquote, retarded or whatever, were segregated and sterilized. Yes. And so there was a boy um, who had written about his experiences and, and he wasn't retarded. He was just kind of a loner. He was loner. Jewish? No, he was, no, he was a loner <laughs> and he was uh, awkward. He was a little slow, but he wasn't, you know, he had a normal IQ. But his family didn't want him. It's devastating. You know, and they put him in the school, and he was raised in the school. And then realized, I'm not stupid, you know. Yes. And he starts a rebellion in the school that eventually burned one of the buildings down. I mean, it's a great story. This is fascinating. And it's all true. And I met him at uh, Freddie. And, um, Can you do the story again Can, once it's been? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I think it's. I think I would have to buy back the rights. I okay. would have to personally buy back the rights. But it's a worthwhile story, and I loved it when it okay. came my way. So anyway, those kinds of things happened, and um, but it was. It's all. It's all good. I mean, you know, I worked. I did a job for Alicia Keys after the nomination. Oh, neat! What you was know? that? That was a great. Another great story. It's, there's a book called Composition in Black and White. It's about a woman named Philippa Schuyler. And Philippa was born in 1931 to a, uh, a black father and a white mother. And she uh, was a piano a prodigy. And when she was like, I don't know, eight or nine years old, she was called the Black Mozart. Oh, and wow. she was featured in the New York World's Fair. She was on the radio. She was in Carnegie Hall. She was an incredible pianist and composer. And everything was fine in her life until she hit adolescence. And suddenly the world was dealing with not just this cute little black girl, yes. but a young woman of color. And we can't have a young woman of color in Carnegie Hall. You know, there aren't women of color in classical music. And the color lines destroyed her. And I often describe this as, you know, the Jackie Robinson story of Jackie Robinson were born 10 years earlier. Wow. And it was just a horrible world. And so Philippa, you know, left the States, she went to Latin America, she went to Europe, and then she ended up in the 60s performing for black soldiers in Vietnam. And she died in Vietnam in a helicopter crash at like the age of 31. Where did that story get made? That was for, um, was it, I think, was it Universal? I want to say Universal, but I could be getting that wrong. Where can Sony. we see that? Where can we no see No one, it? no, they're not doing it. It's another one of these movies that I've written that is fantastic, but never, probably never going to be seen because whether it was Sony Universal, I can't remember, but whoever, whatever studio hired me to write that script eventually said, we're not making dramas. 
You're, you're breaking my heart, and I, I want to, um, I know that you have to go because you're going to Columbia to, to um, go see a pageant for your newest show, but I, I want to ask you a couple more questions. Right. Is that okay? Sure. Um, do you feel pressure as someone who's often hired to write about people of color? Do you feel pressure among that either to tell their story in a way that's um, going to get made? Mm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't feel pressure. I mean, I feel uh, that's part of my job. <clears throat> you know, I think, you know, to me, it's always more interesting to write about uh, the voices that you don't hear every day, you know. And there is a dominant culture in this country. And so that culture is fine. It's taking care of itself. But there are so many voices that we don't hear. And to me, it's more challenging and more interesting to write from those voices. I understand the writing from those voices. How do you then sell those voices? Because you've just told me about two phenomenal films mm -hmm. that ultimately didn't get made. Mm -hmm. And I think that what I want to ask is, is how do you then sell the movies? Because I believe there's an audience for these movies. Mm -hmm. And I believe that writing about the other comes so naturally and so beautifully to you, and I'm <clears> so grateful you do it. But how do you sell these movie studios and television yeah, it's, studios? Yeah, it's, I mean, the irony is that both these two projects came to me <clears throat> from the studios. Okay. So you figure they had an, an interest in making these work. But ultimately, I don't know, somewhere some somebody decided these films probably aren't going to make enough money or something and, and put them on the shelf. And, you know, I, I think that... Um, then there's the other issue, is when they do get made, sometimes mm -hmm. I feel like there's an element of third world porn or a sort of exoticizing of the other in a way that just ends up like stereotyping them, like there's this movie, uh, Riding the Bus of My Sister, with mm -hmm. Rosie O'Donnell, and it's meant to be about a developmentally delayed woman. It ends up making everyone in that movie, mm -hmm. everyone, <laughs> whether you're black, white, or black and white and developmentally delayed look horrible. Mm. So it does worse, it, it, it does less for the cause. And I, I wonder like how you deal with that of having your work minced and changed and edited to a point where it's just yeah. stereotypes and... I know, it's heartbreaking because you don't control these things if, unless you're the filmmaker. And even the filmmaker, you know, they don't always control everything, especially in a studio situation. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is heartbreaking. I just think, you know, you have to sort of keep at it, you know. Okay, but you don't feel like you've ever had any of your work minced or edited. Oh yeah, of course way. I do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, Letters to Juliet is not my pride, proudest moment, you know, as a as a screenwriter. But then again, I was fired from that project early on and replaced by four other writers. Um, you Even know, though in, you were in succession, okay. yeah. As the first writer, I'm pretty much guaranteed I'll have my my name on it. But um, you know, there's maybe two or three lines uh, that I wrote are in that film. And the characters completely revamped, and the whole uh, tone of the film was pitched to a, a sort of a young girl audience, you know, which is not the film that I wrote or wanted to write. You know, when I got the job, I said I really want to make this like Four Weddings and a Funeral, you know, which is a brilliant adult romantic comedy, fabulous, which I loved. And yeah. this ain't that, you know. So I've had that experience of seeing something I loved turned to something I, I couldn't stand. So I have two more qu questions. Um, one is how do you make a living from what you do? Meaning like, do you know how much money you're gonna make from a film? Do you, do you plan for the future? How do you do this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, when I take a job, I know ahead of time what, what the fees will be. So I sort of have an idea, oh, this will, this will cover me for the next nine months or so this is, you know, six months or whatever. So yeah, I definitely, I'm always sort of obsessing about the bottom line, like what's what's left in the bank and what what are the bills. And same with your plays now. Now you know how much you're going to make if if it gets produced in yeah. certain places or, or read again. Um, and I just wanted to hear about what you're working on right now. Um, yeah, I mean, right now I finished this script for Fox Searchlight called The Crown, which is about a, a beauty pageant in women's prison. Um, and I just finished a pilot for HBO called Mayhem, which is based on a play of mine about uh, a kind of fascism that, that grips the small town and what the people in the town do about it. 
And then you also have your novel that you've been working yes, on. Yes, novel for a, I've worked on for a while, and who knows when that will ever be finished. It's like it's very um, sexy. Yeah. Um, yes, we'll see. And then you have two. Um, well, Cloud Teutonics was made in your play. Right. Into a film. Yes. Which I'm hoping to finance and, and direct. Uh, the film will be called Celestina. And what happened with On the Road? On the Road still being worked on, still in post. Okay. Um, thank you so, so much for this. It's a pleasure to have you on and I wanted to thank you. You uh, have a dream job that you created for yourself and I'm really grateful that you have thank done you. so. Thank Thanks. you, it's Jose. Been really fun. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into Employee of the Month. To find out more, you can go to the website, employeeofthemonthshow.com, where you can get information about upcoming live shows and also download other podcasts you can find these on itunes sirius or soundcloud spread the word and if you can please donate there's no donation too small or too big i'm your host katie lazarus and thank you for listening and don't forget to get your parking ticket validated